Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from London, I'm Isa Suarez, and here is what you need to know. Rejected, the LSE turns down Hong Kong's takeover offer, blaming uncertainty as well as political risk. Reworking towards an IPO, the startup plans to go public, but the founder shakes up its structure to do so. Brands be there for you. Why businesses are so keen to make friends 25 years on. It is Friday and this is First Move. A very warm welcome. Isa Suarez sitting in for Julia Chatterley. It is Friday the 13th. It's 2 o'clock here in London. Friday the 13th, but it seems the signs are that it's bringing good luck, not bad, at least on Wall Street. Have a look at the futures pointing to a higher open there. Dow futures down, Dow up uh, to, uh, three tenths of a percent. Uh, Nasdaq just a tenth of a percent also. S&P, similar picture. Uh, all pretty much looking pretty good on the week as well. Investors have gotten most of what they were looking for this week. Not just a new shot of monetary stimulus, if you remember from the ECB, the European Central Bank. We're also seeing signs of a break in the US-China trade war. Of course, the question is, how long will that last? Early on Friday, China delivered the latest in a series of what the US president calls goodwill gestures. State media saying American pork as well as soybeans will be exempt from new tariffs. I'll take you to Wall Street in just a minute to get a sense really how investors are interpreting this. Have a look at the European markets though uh, as we come to a few hours or so until the end of trade. Zetrodax up uh, almost half a percent. Paris cap a quarter. Amsterdam a flat there but the Milan MIB half one percent. Now in Europe if you remember ECB President Mario Draghi really dividing opinion on Thursday with a new round of stimulus. But European markets all taking on this trite, all in the green this Friday the 13th. And don't forget the Federal Reserve. They're holding another rate meeting next week. The big question for markets is, will the Fed follow with a fresh cut? And markets is where we begin our drivers today. Alison Cossett joins me now from New York. Alison, we'll talk about the Fed in just a moment, but let's talk stocks because we're seeing stocks really edging near those record highs. Is everyone just feeling very optimistic about that US and China extending olive branches to one another here? There may be a little bit of that, Isa, but I think uh, more of the optimism is coming from the expectation that the Fed will cut another quarter percentage point and make that cut next week. Of course, the market's definitely going to be watching whether the Fed says whether there will be more cuts. So that really is another uh, step that the Fed would have to take to continue the optimism. But the optimism really is incredible. When you look at the S&P 500 and the Dow, they are fractional percentage points away from all-time highs, never mind the trade war. 
despite softening a little bit, is far from over. Many multinational companies are expecting to report weak third quarter earnings. Uh, you know, never mind the fact that there's been a contraction in manufacturing for the first time in three years, and never mind the fact that uh, Donald Trump continues to duke it out with the Fed. So we're seeing stocks really hold up well, despite a little bit of a rough August. Uh, we did see stocks mm. bounce back. So this bull run really still has has legs to run. Uh, there is an expectation, at least from one analyst from BTIG, uh, strategist Julian Emanuel. He thinks that the S&P 500 could get to 3250 by the end of the year. That means that's an almost 9 percent jump from where it is now. Isa? Well, pretty impressive. Um, let's talk about the Fed and next week and what you're hearing from the trade union spoken to. We know uh, President Trump, he's been highly critical of the Fed's policy. In fact, he tweeted this week regarding the ECB, saying that the ECB had acted quickly uh, while uh, the Fed didn't act. In fact, he even called for rates of zero or lower in a tweet. Uh, from those you've been speaking to, what, what are you hearing? Which way will the Fed move here? Yeah, the expectation, once again, is that the Fed will cut a quarter uh, percentage point. Um, you know, what, what Donald Trump mm. wants is to see a half a percent. Many are thinking that's just too much, that the data that we've been getting, despite it being mixed, you know, showing once again the contraction in manufacturing, but still showing that jobs are still hanging on as far as the numbers go. Uh, the question is whether the Fed is justified uh, to make even a quarter percentage point uh, cut. But many are still expecting that to happen uh, because uh, the, da the data still is mixed. The inverted yield curve is still a factor um, in, in the Fed's thinking, even though it shouldn't be, it probably is that um, Fed members do consider, you know, the big picture when they make that decision next week. Isa. Alison Kosick, thank you very much. Good to see you, Alison. And some developing news to bring you. In the past couple of hours, in fact, the London Stock Exchange has rejected the Hong Kong Exchange's takeover offer. Our Claire Sebastian has more on this. Claire, talk us through the reasons for rejecting the offer. What concerns do they have here? Well, Isa, the, uh, the LSE has published a letter to the management of the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Group this morning, and it was brutal. Uh, they really criticized almost everything about this deal. The first point they say was that the problem was this was contingent on them dropping an existing uh, uh, kind of a purchase of Refinitiv, which is a, a, a market data company. That has been, they say, extremely well received uh, by the market. By contrast, they say a takeover by the Hong Kong Exchanges would be, quote, a significant backward step for the LSE group strategically. So it's so a pretty strong language there. The second problem, they say, uh, is that the regulator approval process for this takeover would have been very long and created a lot of uncertainty uh, for shareholders. Part of the problem of that uh, is, is that they say there is no doubt that your unusual board structure and your relationship with the Hong Kong government will complicate matters. We know that the Hong Kong government uh, is the biggest single shareholder in the Hong Kong exchanges uh, and clearing. There's a lot of concern about, about China tightening its, its control over the city. Uh, that has been the, the, the root of a lot of the protests that we We've seen uh, in recent months. So clearly that is, was a factor in this uh, decision as well. And they didn't like the structure of the deal either. The fact that three quarters of it was made up uh, with shares in Hong Kong exchanges. And they were, were disappointed. They said uh, that this went, they went public with this just two days after notifying the LSE. So a stinging rebuke there. Uh, it's a pretty unusual to see, to see that kind of, of criticism in this context. Pretty 
pretty damning. There was nothing positive there. But actually, I'm going to ask Rob, our producer, to bring the share price because actually London Stock Exchange stocks actually doing pretty well on the news. And Claire, you and I know this because analysts had widely expected the bid to fail, uh, talking about worries about Chinese influence over financial infrastructure. Actually, we're looking at the share price now almost uh, up three and a half percent. But Going back to, to the, the deal, you know, putting that aside, the financial infrastructure and the concerns, was the proposition attractive in any way for shareholders, Claire? Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting actually looking at the share price, Lisa, because it did go up uh, about 5% on the day that, that this, this emerged, this news of a potential takeover bid. Uh, but as you see as well, up on the rejection as well. So I think uh, that kind of, that clearly has, has won out. And of course, the share price is up significantly more than 25% since the Refinitive uh, uh, deal was announced back in July. So clearly that is the proposal, given that it was a binary choice between the two that shareholders prefer. There was a grudging kind of nod in the letter to the the fact that, that this takeover by the Hong Kong exchanges would have provided greater access to the, the Chinese market and all that growth there. But the LSE is saying that they already have uh, access through a partnership they have with the Shanghai Stock Exchange. So overall, uh, you know, I think mm. we can we can hark back to the fact that the CEO of the Hong Kong exchanges described this as a corporate Romeo and Juliet. I think he may now live to regret that because it seems to have been doomed from the start. <laughs> Brilliant. Claire Sebastian there for us. And Claire will be here for us later as we talk friends. Thanks, Claire. See speak to you in a minute. Now, workspace startup WeWork plans to go public on the Nasdaq. The development comes as the company changes its governance structure. This includes appointing a new independent director by the end of this year. Matt Egan is with me. Uh, Matt, now this is a fascinating story because I've been looking at WeWork uh, in the last couple of days. Talk us through how they've changed this, the governance structure, whether that critically, Matt, is enough to attract investors to their public offering here. So, Issa, this is what it looks like when a company is desperate to salvage its IPO, right? I mean, this WeWork debut was really um, on life support because investors were very concerned. They really didn't want to touch this thing due to concerns about massive losses and questionable corporate governance issues. And so now now WeWork is taking this um, sort of unusual step of just weeks before its IPO, it's announcing a series of corporate governance changes that they seem to be designed to sort of reassure Wall Street that this company is willing to grow up, at least if that's what it takes to go public. So just run you through a couple of those changes. Um, mm. Lead independent director appointed by year end. Uh, the power of the super voting shares are going to get cut in half. No member of CEO Adam Newman's family uh, will sit on the board. If Newman becomes incapacitated or dies, his wife will no longer get to help pick his successor. You know, of course, I think all of this raises a question, though. I mean, if we were thought these were such smart moves, why didn't it announce them earlier? Why did it take uh, the fact that the IPO was on the verge of collapse uh, before it did that? That may rub some shareholders the wrong way, but even if they do uh, reassure people who are worried about these management issues, um, there is still this question about whether or not the company even has a path to profitability, right? Because WeWork yeah. has lost $4.2 billion since the start of 2016. Uh, it lost more than $900 million just during the first six months of this year. So, Issa, it's no wonder why this company is in such a rush to raise more money. 
And on that point, Matt, I do wonder whether, you know, these changes suffice in many ways, because I was reading a fascinating article by a journalist in The Guardian here who's basically saying that WeWork looks like a bubble waiting to burst, basically arguing that its value is inflated. What are you hearing? Well, we're hearing that the valuation is coming down really, really sharply, which is very telling, right? Because in the last round of funding as a private company, WeWork was valued at $47 billion. That was just earlier this year. Now the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the IPO valuation, if it happens, is going to be below $20 billion. Uh, That is really a remarkable shift. And I think it's indicative of uh, this serious skepticism about this company, given the corporate governance issues, given the massive losses. And I think there is bigger picture. There's kind of a rethink on Wall Street about uh, the need to really be cautious around some of these companies with high valuations. Um, you sort of wonder if uh, WeWork mm. wished it, it went public uh, maybe you know nine months ago or so. Very good point, Maggie Egan there for us. Thanks very much, Matt. We'll keep an eye on WeWorks. We know uh, there'll be so- several shifts in the next few weeks. Thanks, Matt. Now, I want to take you to keep you in the U.S. because a potential merger between two of America's biggest cigarette companies could go up in smoke as the Trump administration cracks down on e-cigarettes. Paul Monica is more from New York. And, Paul, we heard both from the Trump administration and the FDA both really pushing to ban flavored e-cigarettes because of health concerns as well as teen addiction. Does this crackdown, Paul, make a merger harder to swallow, you think? I think it's going to be tougher, Issa, because when you consider that Altria has made this big bet on the uh, private unicorn Jewel Labs, which is one of the leaders in the vaping market, that was obviously a move that they did to try and minimize the loss that they're seeing in traditional tobacco cigarette use in the U.S. So the hope was that they can latch on to the vaping trend. Then Philip Morris, which wants to merge with Altria potentially to reunify these companies that broke up uh, you know, more than a decade ago, Philip Morris has its own vaping technology called Icos. So that is also, I guess, going to come into question whether or not that is as valuable as that company had maybe hoped if the FDA is looking to put more uh, you know, uh, limits on the sale of you know, vaping and e-cigarette products. One investor uh, was suggesting perhaps that even if Philip Morris isn't planning to pay top dollar, let's say, for Ultria, a deal may not be viable because, as you put it, it's an asset with a murky fundamental outlook. Yeah, exactly. That really, I think, is the big question right now. He said, I think you had prior to this regulatory crackdown, the possibility of Altria and Philip Morris getting back together It was not going to be about what the old company was, not traditional tobacco cigarettes. The hope was Mm. that vaping would lead to growth and that potentially also even cannabis. Because keep in mind, Altria has a huge stake in uh, Kronos, one of the leading Canadian cannabis companies. So now if vaping is no longer potentially going to be the growth industry that people had hoped, it does beg the question, why do these two companies need to get back together? And even if they do, the price would probably be a lot lower than what Altria might have been hoping for just a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. Paul and Monica there for us, breaking it all down. Thanks, Paul. I'll speak to you a bit later. 
Now let me bring you up to date while the story is making headlines around the world this hour. Another chance to shine for 2020 hopefuls. For the first time, the top 10 Democratic candidates hoping to challenge Donald Trump squared off in Texas. Everything from gun control to health care was on the agenda. Take a listen. My plan for health care costs a lot of money. It costs $740 billion. It doesn't cost $30 trillion. Medicare for all. Costs are going to go up for wealthier individuals and costs are going to go up for giant corporations. I, who wrote the damn bill, if I may say so, <laughs> intend to eliminate all out-of-pocket expenses. Now, people in the Bahamas have barely begun to rebuild from the devastation of Hurricane Dorian. Now, a new warning has been issued as another tropical storm forms in the Atlantic. In the aftermath of the hurricane, 1,300 people are unaccounted for. The death toll stands at 50. But that is expected to rise as search efforts continue. Still to come right here on First Move, the Brexit bank robbery. The UK House of Commons speaker has a stern warning for Boris Johnson and the one with the anniversary. Hit sitcom Friends is still there for you. Believe it or not, 25 years on. Bring the latest. Thanks. Welcome back to First Move. Let's check in on sterling, how the British pound is doing. It's trading, if we bring the graphic up for you. Uh, there is 124 against the dollar. That is the strongest it's been since July and comes as investors judge the prospect of a no-deal Brexit. Uh, they're seeing that as receding. Uh, so is a Brexit breakthrough on the cards? Why is Sterling so optimistic? Well, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, we have found the last few hours, will go to Luxembourg on Monday to meet Jean-Claude Juncker, the outgoing EU Commission president. This was Mr Johnson meeting voters in Yorkshire in the North England earlier today. Meanwhile, House of Commons Speaker John Burko has warned the Prime Minister that in his quest to deliver Brexit, there's no justification, it seems, for breaking the law. Take a listen. One should no more refuse to request an extension of Article 50 because of what one might regard as the noble end of departing from the EU as soon as possible than one could possibly excuse robbing a bank on the basis that the cash stolen would be donated to a charitable cause immediately afterwards. Uh, we'll talk about Burko. Melissa Bell is joining me now uh, in just a second. Let's talk about this meeting on Monday. Is this a sign? I mean, Sterling is looking at this as something positive, that perhaps we might, there might be a deal, there might be a proposal that the EU hasn't seen. Well, because... Because this impasse needs to find some kind of resolution, some kind of way out, and there is now this talk, this whisper, really, for the time being, Isa, that one of the things that Boris Johnson may be willing to look at is the very thing that Theresa May had been opposed to that had been an EU suggestion over the course of those long and laborious mm. negotiations, which was essentially a Northern Ireland-only backstop. Her objection had been that this would drive a customs line through the Irish mm -hmm. uh, Sea, essentially creating or, or threatening, rather, the constitutional integrity of the United Kingdom. There is a suggestion that is far from confirmed that one of the things that may be being explored in the talks that are going on now between the British government and the EU is this possibility that perhaps, in fact, mm. uh, Boris Johnson might consider this as a palatable, more palatable alternative than the backstop that is on the table. 
We'll have to wait until this meeting on Monday to find out whether that is uh, something that he is willing to explore mm. and willing to put on the table. But that is, for the time being, the only solution, the only way out of the impasse in which we find ourselves. So perhaps a little hope is better than no hope at all. No, completely. But we they haven't received, received any proposals, I'm guessing, no. as, of, as and, of right and now. And we've heard from uh, Michel Barnier, the chief uh, EU Brexit negotiator, being very clear yesterday, he spoke to MEP, saying, look, the ball is again in London's court. We wait to hear what concrete proposals they have to make that might be acceptable to the 27. So this is far from done. It is far from even the beginning of a negotiation, as far as we know, in terms of what they're actually talking about. But for the time being, because of all that's happened over the last couple of weeks, Boris Johnson's only hope at the t- for the time being is this idea that maybe something might be able to be reached that would prevent uh, this this blockage from taking hold. He spoke a moment ago in Rotherham, saying again mm. that he was cautiously optimistic uh, that a deal might be reached, but that he doubled down, but doubling down again on the idea that if it was not, we would be leaving on the 31st of August. And and this is, of course, at the heart of this battle that's going on now between Downing Street and all of the institutions that underpin British parliamentary democracy, its legislature, yeah. its uh, its its judiciary. So uh, a battle that has not uh, seen its yeah. end yet, uh, and that continues very much. And we were reminded of it a moment ago when the heckler put to him in the middle of his speech, he had to be carted out saying, look, why don't you get to Parliament yeah. and sort out this mess that you've created, Mr Johnson? Melissa Bell, thank you very much. We'll have much more after a very short break. One of the most prominent proponents of a no-deal Brexit has been Tim Martin, the founder of one of Britain's largest pubs, pub chains, J.D. Weatherspoon. I spoke with him just before the show. Take a listen. Do you still believe or think that we can get a deal at this stage? Well, I hope we don't get a deal because I think a deal will be bad for the country. A deal ties your hands. If we leave without a deal, um, we can uh, uh, eliminate tariffs on thousands of non-EU imports. Um, We can avoid payment of £39 billion, regain control of fishing. But the most important economic thing we can get is greater democracy. And democracy is economic steroids. Look at South Korea versus North Korea. Look at how well Japan did when it became democratic. Tim, today we heard from John Burko, the Speaker of the, the House of Commons, who basically said that Boris Johnson would be acting, I'm quoting him here, like a bank robber if he refuses to delay Brexit. What are your thoughts on those comments and what we've heard from Burko in the last couple of weeks? I so? think Burko and his cohorts are the bank robber. The government sent a leaflet to every house in the country in 2016 saying uh, uh, this is a referendum, it's once in a generation, you decide, the government will implement your decision. Most MPs were elected, 85% of them, on a manifesto which honoured the referendum. And it is Parliament and Mr Burko who haven't honoured the referendum. But you, you had said that uh, elite Remainers are ignoring the big picture. What do you mean by that? Uh, elite Remainers are ignoring the big picture because what they're doing is they're uh, ignoring the fact that tariffs on 93% of the world will be reduced, that we save £39 billion and that we increase the level of democracy. They find it very difficult to input into their computers the effect of increasing democracy. They find it quite easy to say the ports will be blocked for three days. 
As a businessman, I want to get your take on what you've seen from Yellowhammer report, report that really outlining some of uh, the short impacts, the impact the country might face, everything from healthcare to medication delays at ports. How does that, if it does, impact your business at all? Yellowhammer, as I understand it, is an exercise in trying to think of what might go wrong, which is a legitimate thing for a business or a government to do. All the things which are supposed to have gone wrong haven't gone wrong. Uh, people said the planes won't fly. Mm -hmm. Now, Ryanair has said that will no longer be an issue. We'd heard that by now tens of thousands of jobs would have left the city of London. That hasn't happened. I think Yellowhammer is an exercise in uh, caution, mm. and that's okay. It's not economic reality. We'll do better if we leave without a deal. If there is chaos, would you be able to live with the fact that you're saying, actually, it's the worst case scenario, this is not going to be as bad? Can you live with that? We're trying to regain democracy in the UK, which is the biggest uh, beneficiary for freedom and prosperity. Mm. One and a half days chaos at the ports. There's no reason there should be. For example, your burgers, tomatoes, salad, uh, lettuce, a lot of that comes from the EU. What's your backup plan? Do you have a strategy? Do you have a plan in place if those produce can't come in? I think what will happen is that EU suppliers will say, we can't afford this. Mm. We've, got to, we've just, Copperberg, one of our suppliers of excellent Swedish cider, have switched their production to the UK. And we sold a million pints of Copperberg in July. That's trade. <laughs>And that was the opening the bell on Friday the 13th. Down the S&P, uh, if you remember yesterday, closing off just short of record highs. Uh, U.S. stocks opening, uh, expected to open uh, higher today. There you go. Dow Jones, quarter of a percent. S&P, a uh, tenth of a percent. Investors feeling uh, rather positive, in fact, for Friday the 13th as trade tensions appear to be easing between uh, the U.S. and China. And, of course, after we saw a stimulus from the ECB on Thursday. So starting this Friday or ending the week, depending how you want to see it, uh, on, in the positive, in the green, as you can see there. In terms of global movers, we're keeping our eyes on Southwest Airlines. Their trading higher stock got upgraded to out perform. Macquarie says the airline will be able to run efficiently after the Boeing 737 grounding ends. Another stock we're looking at, you can see there, is Apple stocks down at 1.5%, almost 1.5% lower. That's after Goldman Sachs reduced the tech giant's price target. Now it's predicting and a 26% downside risk. Now this is because of the accounting method Apple will use for its new streaming service that we brought to you here on CNN all this week. Smart Direct, also stocks are up, as you can see there. Club, it's up 4%, doing pretty well, actually. Uh, still trading well below the IPO price of $23. Now, the company, which makes teeth straightening kits, listed on the NASDAQ on Thursday. Still enjoying uh, that celebration. They're up 4% or so. Hugh Gimmer, Global Market Strategy, JP Morgan Asset Management, joins me now. Hugh, thanks for being here with me. Plenty for us to get our teeth into. Let's start first with what we saw in the markets. We're seeing a pretty 
stellar week, I have to say, with stock markets, so different from what we have been seeing the last few weeks. How much of this is um, traders getting very excited about what the Fed has next week mm-hmm. or trade the lack of trade war, the trade war easing between China and the United States? Sure. I think the equity market really is caught in a bit of a tug of war at the moment with trade uncertainty mm-hmm. and slowing global growth on one side and then central bank stimulus on the other. And it's really about which of those two sides is pulling hardest in one direction. Which one moment. is it? And so this week, I think the trade news has been positive for the market. Uh, investors are, are reading into the developments between the US and China very positively and really hopes are building for a deal or a, a mini deal potentially of some sort later this year. But we've been here so many times. Exactly. And <laughs> I think you're right, therefore, to, to question whether this optimism in the market is appropriate. Mm. There have been ebbs and flows in the US-China trade negotiations throughout the past year or so. And I think we're really in, in another one at the moment. And so we're not reading too much into the, the optimism in the market currently. So maybe it might be short-lived. We, we'll keep an eye on that. Let's talk Fed. What are your expectations uh, for next week? Uh, Alison Kosek of the New York Stock Exchange is basically telling us expecting of a cut. But that might not be, not be enough for President Trump here. Uh, yeah, I think a cut is broadly expected. And I would agree with that personally. A 25 basis point yeah. cut looks likely next week. For me, it will be about the direction of travel for the Fed thereafter. And so I think markets will be looking for any signs as to whether this is going to be a couple of cuts from the Fed and then they're going to try and pause and let the economy run or whether this is really the start of a more significant cut. And as our viewers will know, language is key. What we hear from the Fed, not so much what they announce, but, you know, what really between the lines. What do you want to hear? What do you what will tell you that this is we're in the, in the right track here, Hugh? Sure. So the assessment of the Fed's outlook for growth, both domestically and globally, will be very important. And I think if you were to see uh, a softening in their tone, concerns building perhaps mm. around the global outlook, then that may cause markets to start to price in greater Fed easing ahead. Uh, will the Fed be looking at the ECB and its move here this week, trying, will they be looking at each other? How, does it, do they work in tandem in terms of the global economy? I wouldn't say that they're looking at each other uh, as much as I'd say they're looking at similar conditions yeah. globally. So they're facing similar challenges in terms of inflation not being quite as high as they may like, in terms of slowing growth. And so it's fair to say that their reaction is similar, but I don't think it's one leading the other. Uh, We heard from uh, President Trump. You know, President Trump has been very critical of the Fed's policy. He tweeted this week about the ECB, the European Central Bank, said it's basically saying they acted quickly uh, and basically saying why the Fed didn't act. President Trump also has been tweeting and calling for for rates of zero or low in a tweet. Uh, I mean, we, I never even thought that we would get to this, this sort of comments. Would you imagine of getting rates to, to a zero? Is that even possible at this point? It all depends on your time horizon, I think. So the, the path of rates, in my view, is lower from here. But as to whether we do start to approach zero, I think that's as to how the, the macro picture plays out. 
So if, as I say, this is more of a, a significant cutting cycle, I think it's because growth weakens through this year and further into 2020. And then I do see the, the path of Fed rates moving significantly lower. As to whether we approach zero, mm. I think that's quite a, a negative macro scenario for that to come about. Uh, what are your concerns as you look to Europe? We've seen ECB move, quantitative easing. That's something that uh, markets seem to, uh, to have liked. Uh, where are your concerns when you look at the European economy? I think if you look at the market reaction yesterday, it was quite confused. Mm. Investors weren't quite sure whether to read this as good news because there's more stimulus coming. Or more news as a warning. (laughs) Exactly. So I think that explains some of the the volatility that we saw in asset prices uh, immediately after the event yesterday. From my perspective for Europe, the open nature of the European economy Mm. does make it particularly vulnerable to the trade dispute. And so even more so than than the US or China, for example, it's that openness and that high exposure to trade volumes that makes Europe vulnerable in this scenario. Uh, I know I'm being told to wrap, but I need to ask you this. Sterling, I don't know if you can bring it up, Rob. Sterling doing particularly well today, hopes of a deal. There it goes, up uh, 1.24 against the dollar. What are your thoughts, Hugh? So Sterling, there are two very binary outcomes here. So you have no deal. I think Sterling would have significant room to move lower if we Mm -hmm. were to approach a no deal, either at the end of October or potentially early next year. At the same time, we're starting to hear noises about a deal not being completely written off over the next six weeks or so. And so when faced with these two very binary scenarios, for us, it's about not taking heroic calls on either side, really. And that applies for sterling and for UK assets more broadly. Hugh, thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Now, time for one more crypto crazy as we wrap up all our week of all things Bitcoin and co. We show you how a veteran investor decided to ditch traditional assets and go full crypto. We'll explain next. Now, in the last part of our crypto crazy week, we look at what lure cryptocurrencies have for mainstream investors. Travis Kling is the founder and chief investment officer of Ikigai uh, Assessment Management. He spent 10 years in traditional finance at leading institutions. Last year, he left that world to focus solely on investing in crypto. Julia spoke with uh, Kling and asked him what got him into it in the first place. I'm not really uh, a tech investor by background, and I'm not really a tech kind of guy. Um, I don't own an Apple Watch. I think Alexa's big brother. I've always kind of been like that. So, you know, I, I saw Bitcoin pretty early, n- not nearly as early as some people, but around when the time Silk Road got shut down in late 2013. And then in early 14, Mt. Gox got hacked, and that was sort of confirmation to me that this wasn't really an investable asset class. Um, so I stopped paying attention to it in early 2014. And then fast forward to the back part of 16, the price started going back up again and it popped back up on my radar. I started doing more research and then all uh, Ethereum and all the ICOs in early 17, those started going crazy. So I started doing more research around those. As I was doing that that period of self-study, I just kept coming across revolutionary concept after revolutionary concept. And and collectively, um, over about probably 500 hours of self-study in the summer of 2017, convinced myself that, uh, that this technology was going to be the most important innovation since the internet the first time around, and as such was, was likely to be the you know, most significant investment opportunity of a generation. Why? Because I feel like 
up until that point, what was going on, whether it's in cryptocurrencies or in the underlying technology here, was something very separate from what was going on in the rest of the world. And I do feel like right now it feels like we're in an intersection where we talk about cryptocurrencies in particular in relation to what's going on as far as monetary stimulus, a lack of fiscal stimulus perhaps from governments. It's like the intersection of the two things are tied particularly now. Yeah, so so now is an incredibly interesting time from a global macro perspective. And, and it also is, is um, you know, to borrow a phrase from the Old Testament, it appears that, that crypto has been created for such a time as this. Um, with what we have with uh, 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 monetary and fiscal policies from central banks and governments, um, big tech overreach, government overreach uh, in general, data privacy issues that are, that are coming to the front and center of, of the sort of collective consciousness. And, and specifically with Bitcoin, and maybe we can put sort of Bitcoin in one bucket and put you know, all the other crypto assets in, in a different bucket. Um, Bitcoin has gone through a number of different sort of uh, uh, identities or, or phases over its 10 and a half year history. And I think part of the confusion that uh, uh, the sort of average person has uh, with understanding Bitcoin and other crypto assets is because of these evolutions of identity. So, so just to be clear, Bitcoin is a non-sovereign, hard cap supply, global, immutable, decentralized, digital store of value. And that's a lot of different adjectives, but all of them are very important. And what that leads us to is it is a hedge against monetary and fiscal irresponsibility from central banks and governments globally. You're basically saying, actually, that um, at a time when it looks like some of the biggest economies and the central banks in those economies are enacting a race to the bottom as far as their currencies are concerned, pushed by stimulus to support the economies, actually cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin offer a better an alternative source of, of protecting your wealth? Is that what you're saying? Because you use the term hedge there, which is an interesting way to describe them. Yeah, so, so, so the way that I think about it is it's apparent that major central banks are all racing to devalue their currency faster than everybody else. And if all these central banks are doing that at the same time, what are they devaluing against? They're devaluing against things that have provable scarcity. And gold has provable scarcity. Bitcoin has even more provable scarcity than gold. In Austrian economics terms, it's the hardest money in human history. And uh, I understand that it's not sort of bite size for, you know, the average person to understand this. You, you have to understand, you know, some amount of cryptography and computer science and game theory and sociology and governance and mechanism. There's a lot of things that you have to understand. But, but simplistically, it is, it is a, an insurance policy against monetary and fiscal policy irresponsibility. And it's apparent that the world needs that more today than they did yesterday. And they're going to need it more tomorrow than we need it today based on what central banks and governments are doing. We spent a lot of time talking about Bitcoin. What do you think of some of the others? Because 
from what I've seen, particularly on social media, there is a great deal of, uh, let's call it enthusiasm about XRP. There's a great deal of enthusiasm from certain quarters about things like Ethereum. What do you think of each of these and what do you actually trade here? Yeah, so so at Ikigai, we consider the top 150 cryptos by market class. Market cap is our investable universe. We have that universe divided into sectors and subsectors that kind of look like the S&P 500. Um, so there's many use cases for distributed ledger technology. Money is the killer app for distributed ledger technology right now, um, specifically store of value. And, and people, um, I think... Uh, some people try and uh, put a knock on Bitcoin that it's, it's too slow to be very good for, for payments right now to be used as a method of exchange right now. And, and, and my argument there is um, uh, Bitcoin is too good at being a store of value right now to be a good method of exchange right now because nobody wants to be the Bitcoin pizza guy that spent 10,000 Bitcoin on a pizza. And as uh, the price increases over a number of years and the volatility decreases, which is certainly our expectation, it's going to be better for a, uh, a method of exchange. But in the meantime, it's a great store of value. So your message is to people that are perhaps looking at this, maybe they've dipped their toes into Bitcoin, maybe they're thinking about it. It's a good time to invest right now and um, don't spend your Bitcoin if you've got it on a pizza. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, they're making it increasingly easier to spend Bitcoin and that's that's great. But but then you look at like um, all of the, the centralized method of exchange crypto projects and, and Libra is a great example of that. Right. And specifically in, in the United States, like two years ago, like in the summer of 2017, we thought that, that, that Bitcoin's sort of use case for the world was so that Americans could buy cups of coffee which is like really silly, right? Because we have a really great method of exchange system right now. I mean, look at Venmo, right? Like Venmo works awesome. And in, in WeChat, I mean, in, in China, you have uh, WeChat and Alipay. And uh, uh, those are sort of uh, uh, proliferated methods of exchange there. Libra's trying to run at that same use case. But, but all of those are backed by fiat currencies that central banks are racing to devalue as quickly as possible. So however easy it is to use WeChat and, and Alipay and uh, Line in Japan and Kakao in South Korea um, and, 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 and Libra and all these things, um, the underlying uh, uh, currency that you're still using to spend there is still these fiat currencies, which, which over time are going to prove to be an inferior store of value relative to Bitcoin. Travis Kling, the founder and chief investment officer, Ikigai Assessment Manager, and speaking to Aunt Julia Chatterley. Now, if getting your head around cryptocurrency makes you feel old, then you might not want to hear that the TV series Friends began a quarter of a century ago. But don't worry, we'll be there for you next. Look, turning 30 is not that big a deal. Oh, really? Is that how you felt when you turned 30? Why, God, why? We had a deal. Let the others grow old, not me. I kind of feel what uh, he felt when I turned 30. It was Joey's party and he could cry if he really wanted to. But in real life, the cast of the circumference are celebrating their anniversary. They don't really need to feel so glum about 25 years of their iconic show, one that almost feels as popular 
as ever. Claire Sebastian's in New York for us. And, and Claire, I think it's still very popular, even with those people that the much younger generation, I may add. Uh, how are businesses uh, making a mint out of this anniversary, though? Yeah, it's the extraordinary thing about this is that friends, of course, came of age in a world before the iPhone, before Instagram, before Netflix, uh, where it still, you know, lives on. I'm certainly as someone who grew up with the show feeling pretty old uh, today. But the thing about this show is that it, it continues to be relatable and aspirational at the same time. Time Viewers want to watch it, but they also kind of want to live in it. And this is where brands and companies are coming in and trying to get a piece of the action. Take a look. From product placement. No, but this Wonder Broom is amazing. Hey, <laughs> to memorabilia and even haircuts, Friends has always been a brand that sells. And 25 years on, that hasn't changed. It's still not enough for viewers just to watch the show. They want to live in the world of Monica, Chandler, Ross, Rachel, Phoebe and Joey. And that means eating their food, sitting on their couch and, of course, drinking their coffee. And businesses are taking advantage. Coffee chain Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf jumped at the chance of a tie-up for the anniversary, launching a special edition range of coffee, specialty drinks and memorabilia. Our friends-themed coffee mugs we pre-released and actually sold out in about three hours. They also hosted two pop-up Central Perk events in Los Angeles in August. Those two locations, we saw significant spikes in foot traffic. But more importantly, as a business, it really bolstered system-wide sales. Isn't it cool? It's an apothecary table. <gasps> Pottery Barn also brought back the famous apothecary table, which despite its $1,000 price tag is a top seller in its department, the company says. Must be the antique properties. You can almost smell the opium. Even Lego is getting in on the action with a $60 replica of Central Perk. Lego says it's one of its fastest selling sets ever. Now, of course, none of these promotions would work nearly as well if Friends hadn't experienced a revival in the age of streaming. Last year, it was Netflix's second most watched show. And the company reportedly paid around $100 million to keep the rights to the show for one more year before it goes on a break, moving to Warner Media's HBO Max streaming service in 2020. It's an iconic show, and ultimately, it's really one of the crown jewels of streaming. Everything changed now with HBO coming in, a major shot across the bow at Netflix, taking friends. And I ultimately believe 2 to 3% of Netflix viewers watch it just because of friends. So for those who say friends and money don't mix... What's more important, your friends or money? Friends! friends. friends. This 25-year-old sitcom still gets the last laugh. <laughs> And Issa, those last few shots you see in the piece, they are from a New York City uh, pop-up experience for Friends. Tickets are actually sold out. You have to put your email on a list. Wow. There's been an extraordinary uh, response from Friends. Lego has also sold out of that set. Pottery Barn launched another couple of uh, products, things like mugs and tea towels. They are not shipping till December. So people are clearly going crazy for all of these products. And I think uh, that's why you see the brands keep flocking. Absolutely. And Claire, I suppose at this point, what really want everyone wants to know is whether they're going to get back together again. I think it's unlikely. I think uh, it was Chandler, uh, the, the actor, uh, Matthew Perry, who once told Variety that, that he would worry that if they did that, people wouldn't watch. So I think uh, there's an element that they don't want to mess with what the magic was the first time around, Issa. Yeah, if it's working, just leave it that way, isn't it? Claire Sebastian, thanks very much. Good to see you. And that does it for me. Thanks very much for watching. I'm Isa Suarez. The International Desk with Robin Kerno starts after a very short break. Do stay right here with CNN.
When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.